Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for tuning in today. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Be sure to visit our website, b'nai like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The easiest way to get the latest episode is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play on your smartphone. Over his nine-decade career, Jewish-American songwriter Irving Berlin created some of the most beloved and celebrated popular music in the United States. Due to major songs such as God Bless America, White Christmas, Easter Parade, Irving Berlin's music continues to live on as canonized works in American popular culture. One of the less examined aspects of Irving Berlin's life is his relationship with New York City, a place where Berlin grew up as a Jewish immigrant on the Lower East Side. In his newly published book, Irving Berlin, New York Genius, distinguished biographer and journalist James Kaplan tackles the complex relationship between Irving Berlin and the city of New York. James Kaplan is the author of the two-volume biography of Frank Sinatra, Frank, the voice, and Sinatra, the chairman. He has also profiled a wide range of public figures, including playwright Arthur Miller and comedian and writer Larry David. James, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, Dan, thank you for having me. Well, let's start with uh, the Jewish Live series, which is uh, a great series on Jewish personalities. Um, did you suggest the subject? Were you uh, asked to write the book? Um, based on your great skill at synthesizing the vast landscape of 20th century American music and the interdependence of its creators and performers, how did this book happen? Well, I received a call from a woman named Eileen Smith, who is a great editor, and she is in charge of the Jewish Live series, and I was very gratified to hear Eileen inviting me to do uh, to write an entry in the series, and for a while we couldn't quite think of uh, who to do, who I should write about. Uh, a couple of possibilities were suggested, uh, uh, but they didn't work out for various reasons. And then uh, a light bulb sort of flashed on over my head. Uh, Irving Berlin was somebody who not only had written a lot of songs that Sinatra had recorded, but was very important in my household growing up. My mother went to New York City's uh, High School of Music and Art, now the High School of Performing Arts. She was a singer, piano player. She often played Berlin songs on the piano and, and sang them. So it was sort of in my bloodstream as I was growing up. I was strolling up one evening by the silvery moon. I could hear somebody singing a familiar tune. So I stopped a while to listen. Berlin's history and the musical path he followed uh, dovetails not only with the story of New York, but the, the real narrative of the immigrant experience. Um, talk about that a little bit. Is America's music inseparable with the development of the city and its uh, citizens, do you think? Well, uh, an interesting uh, sidelight uh, or quality of Berlin's early career is that he spent much of the beginning of his career from... It really began in 1907 with an ethnic song, an Italian song, called uh, uh, Marie, Marie from Sunny Italy. 
and uh, that was 1907. Berlin was all of 19 years old, and uh, up until World War One, uh, as he joined a music publishing firm, uh, most uh, most of the songs he wrote were were ethnically uh, ethnically pitched. So there were Italian American. Italian American songs. There were African American songs. Uh, there were Jewish American songs. I'm saying it all very politely and politically correctly. Uh, in those days, they used different terms. And I, I think that um, we were talking about it uh, actually here at uh, B'nai B'rith about how so much has changed over the last hundred years. Um, in terms of what was depicted on the stage and what was depicted in music. But at the time, I guess this was generally uh, accepted as a, uh, as a genre, as a style of music. It was. It was an era... The, the, the term melting pot was very uh, popular in the early 20th century. But in fact, I always think of New York City and of, of the country as a whole then and to this day, really, as an unmelted melting pot. So there were Jewish neighborhoods, there were Italian neighborhoods, there were Irish neighborhoods, and if you were a kid in New York City back at the beginning of the 20th century and you walked into the wrong neighborhood, uh, you could get a pretty bad beating. Uh, and I think this I think this fact was reflected in, in the songs that were written. There was a sort of uh, glorification, celebration of ethnicity, uh, but with a, kind of an underlay of of what? Uh, sometimes of gentle mockery, sometimes, sometimes not so gentle mockery. When reading the book, it was it's hard for me to figure out whether uh, Berlin seems to have had a happy life or not. Uh, did the intense poverty experienced uh, by Berlin as he grew up scar his later years, uh, leaving the memory of suffering that might have affected the way that he dealt with the world and dealt with music? How did his um, immigrant experience, father was absent after a certain period of time. Um, he was very close to his mother, as you write, uh, his sisters. Um, what kind of impact did, did that uh, have on him all the way through his very long life of 101 years? Well, late, late in his life, Berlin said, I think everybody ought to have a lower east side uh, at the beginning of their life. I think that his poor poverty-struck beginnings were uh, really a go kind of goad to him and an inspiration. I think what is more uh, germane to Berlin's uh, emotions uh, and, and to his work as a songwriter was his history of, of deep loss. He lost his father when he was 13 years old. Uh, his first marriage only lasted for four months. He married, went uh, went with his first wife in 1912 to Havana on honeymoon. She caught typhoid and died uh, Died four months later. And then uh, after he married a second time, uh, he lost an infant son to crib death. Uh, terrible losses, all of them. And I think, I think all those losses gave a lent, if not in direct subject matter, in tonality, tonality uh, lent his uh, lent his compositions an undertone of of sadness. How did his uh, Jewish background impact his uh, not only his essential understanding of American life, a vision, or perhaps more of an intuition uh, that could um, perfectly kind of convey the way people experience romance, joy, loneliness, child nostalgia, and even war, 
How much was the Jewish component important to all of this or against the the broader immigrant component? And then as he succeeded from being a, a singer in a, in a, in a pub and uh, then a song plugger and then all the way up uh, to, to, the, to the heights, um, how much did that, that Jewish experience, uh, how much was it reflected in his work? I think it was deeply reflected in his work. Berlin felt himself Jewish to his bones. His father was a cantor. Berlin used to go along with his father when his father um, managed to catch an odd gig, uh, High Holy Day, uh, singing at some of the synagogues on the Lower East Side. And although Berlin himself was never an observant Jew, he was deeply Jewish. It's always interesting to me that we can use the phrase uh, secular Judaism. So many Jews, uh, present company included, think of themselves as deeply Jewish and yet secular. We don't say that really about Christianity. Don't talk about secular Christianity or secular Islam. Berlin was a secular Jew but a Jew uh, deeply, and a New York Jew from the beginning. He, he came as part of that uh, great migration from Eastern Europe uh, because of the, uh, the outrages and the pogroms uh, uh, in, in Russia at that time. And, uh, and so he was a despised minority leaving Europe and arriving in what was supposed to be the, uh, the Golden of Medina, the, the place where the sidewalks and streets were paved with gold, he found otherwise, but he he succeeded and uh, and he thrived, and I think that he was always deeply aware of his immigrant background and always so grateful to uh, to America for 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 letting him succeed to such a great extent. As you uh, write in the book, um, it seems he was even surprised by his own success, and he had. The early songs, which uh, you um, you cover in the book, um, there were some ethnic dialogues, uh, dialect uh, songs, and, and others. But then, in 1911, comes Alexander's Ragtime Band, and and that's that's the turning point. Uh, tell us about that. It was a great turning point, not only in Berlin's career. Uh, it was a huge thing. This song. It was a song that he kind of had had in his head. At this point, he's 23 years old, very young man, working for a music publisher and writing all these ethnic songs. And Alexander, in those days, uh, in those pretty benighted days, was uh, was actually uh, a name that was used in a number of uh, ethnic songs about African-Americans. Alexander, again, in those benighted days, being seen as an absurdly uh, distinguished-sounding name for uh, for an African-American to have. And so Alexander of Alexander's Ragtime Band was was a black man. This song uh, was, it was a snatch of words, a snatch of music that he wrote down uh, and, 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 uh, and, and dictated to a piano player at the music publisher before getting on a train to go on vacation in 1911 down to Florida. And when the song came out, it was an immediate smash. And I think the importance of this song not only to Berlin, because it made him at age 23 world famous and a millionaire, but in the early days of the new technology of the phonograph record, this was a song that made its way around the world and really heralded the beginning of the American century. The, um, the impression is that 
uh, luck played a very big part in his career uh, that um, not too long after that, uh, luck not being necessarily World War I, which we, which we entered late as the United States, but uh, entered in a big way, um, World War I also figures uh, prominently in his continued success, particularly with, uh, oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Um, how much did that help to further propel uh, the career? Well, it actually <laughs> threw a kind of a wrench in his career because soon after he was, he was a naturalized, uh, he applied for naturalized American citizenship in 1915, finally got it in 1917 and was immediately drafted. And Berlin, who throughout his life worked deep into the night, two o'clock, three o'clock, four in the morning, suddenly found himself in an army camp out in Long Island having, having to be wakened every morning by Reveille at 5 a.m. He didn't like that very much and went to the commandant at the base and said, I can write you an army show uh, on one condition. If you would please uh, let me sleep in when the Mueller blows a Reveille at five in the morning. Uh, he was in the Army for about a year and a half, and his business, uh, even though he wrote this Army show and brought it to Broadway, uh, his business was sort of slowed down by his Army itch. And, but when he, hit, uh, when he came back from the Army, he, he really hit the ground running. And with the success of the Army show, the success of Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, uh, and the continued success of Alexander, uh, he really... He really charged into the late 19-teens and early 1920s with an enormous amount of, uh, of commercial momentum. He seemed also to have a very good business sense. Um, always, uh, reading the book, uh, always um, conscious of um, the business implications of uh, the creative work uh, that he was doing in terms of the music publishers that he worked for and then to go into business for himself, and then ultimately, later on, uh, to be involved um, with uh, the building of uh, the Music Box Theater. Um, talk to that uh, special quality. Not every composer, actor, singer um, is able to do, it seems, uh, to be both your own agent uh, and uh, the creative partner uh, in, a, in a career. Berlin was a tremendously hard worker. His, his greatest songs are distinguished by a kind of uh, by a kind of beautiful simplicity that it took him tremendous effort to produce. And so, as I said before, he was a nighttime worker, worked throughout the night, and he was also from the beginning very acutely aware of the business of songwriting. He received his apprenticeship at the music publisher, and then became more his own man and. Uh, was always uh, was always powerfully uh, uh, powerfully uh, motivated and and uh, he he was he was an incredibly effective negotiator uh, with uh, with Hollywood for example in the 1930s uh, all these studio moguls said they had never seen a tougher trader than Berlin. Uh, he, uh, in later life, even into his 70s and 80s, he used to go around to music stores where sheet music was sold, and he, was, he would rub, run a finger across the sheet music uh, of uh, his, his own songs to see if there's any dust on them. And if there was, oh boy, there was trouble. 
the involvement with Hollywood and um, later with Broadway, um, it would have, in those years, in the 30s and the 40s, so many uh, entertainers, um, not to mention the companies themselves, moved out of New York, which was its uh, the center of the movie business. Of course, Broadway remained in New York. Um, but he stayed in New York. Uh, he was a, a New York guy in that sense. Why didn't he make the move? Well, when he went to Hollywood, he felt out of place. Berlin was a guy who his whole life loved... He loved Times Square. He loved the bustle of New York. He loved the buzz of New York. He loved the Jewishness of New York. He loved the delis, the Jewish delis around New York. He loved being able to buy all the daily newspapers at 2 in the morning in Times Square. And Hollywood, he found dreadfully sleepy and stultifying. Uh, it was a company town where he was able to drive hard bargains, uh, and make a lot of money and, uh, and make one of the great partnerships of his life and, and friendships of his life with Fred Astaire, but uh, always found himself drawn back to New York. That was uh, really, from the moment he walked onto that, walked onto that gangplank and, and onto Ellis Island in 1893, he was a New Yorker through and through. To go back to the composing uh, for a second, you write about... Well, there seems to be some discussion about um, many of the songs that he wrote, whether they were based on his own personal emotions, um, given his own in, in private life, um, or whether he simply was a genius at, at turning out uh, lyrics, um, as you say, working through the night, uh, having to produce 14 songs for a show, 24 songs for a show. Um, how much of the Songs like Always and, and, and others uh, were from deep within him as opposed to simply sitting down with, with uh, paper and pen and, and sketching something out musically. He wrote very well for character. And he was able, in these ethnic songs, if he was writing an Italian song, he could write as an Italian-American uh, character. If he was writing an African-American song, he could try anyway to, to write as an African-American character. Uh, but but uh, he was most himself when he was writing uh, witty music and witty lyrics. Uh, he, he was a, he was a, a composer of, of such great wit and simplicity and, uh, uh, and, and, and fun. So to go back to the music and how he composed, there's a discussion in the book about whether or not, and it shows up in a couple of places, whether or not um, or how much of Irving Berlin's own emotions went into some of his more successful and I would say more, more beautiful songs, a song like Always, how much was personal and how much um, were... Um, you able to determine uh, was simply kind of the uh, workaday Berlin who had to turn out uh, 14 songs or 24 songs uh, for a show, and he did that dutifully, and he did work through the night. How do we how do we differentiate there? Was it more one than the other? Was it more personal than it was uh, workaday? It was both. Then it was all of the above. Berlin always argued strenuously against the as he saw it, accusation that he was writing autobiographically. He only wrote nakedly autobiographically. 
autobiographically a few times. He wrote he wrote a beautiful song about his late first wife Dorothy, uh, a song called "When I Lost You." Uh, and one could argue that some of the uh, the deep emotions of a song like Blue Skies, for example, which I uh, I always call the saddest song about happiness ever written, uh, <laughs> were, were Berlin's, were very much Berlin's own emotions. Uh, his most powerful songs come from, as I said before, he had experienced loss, uh, come from a place of, uh, of, of depth in his soul, and yes, sometimes express sadness along with happiness. At the same time, Berlin could take a show, and I think, I think the, the acme, the zenith, the height of his art uh, in this regard would be Annie Get Your Gun, when Berlin wrote an entire show about a, uh, a young female sharpshooter, Annie Oakley, in the Wild West. To move it up uh, into the, the late 30s and into the 40s, uh, I, I didn't want to leave our discussion without talking about This is the Army. Now, I say that because um, he's now passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, there was a trombonist in his orchestra um, who uh, was in the movie, uh, This is the Army. He must have been uh, 19 or 20, I guess, at the time. And uh, he uh, was a a regular uh, synagogue-goer at at my synagogue. Um, Patriotism played a very important role in so much of his music. Uh, and and it was able to to go from the immigrant period to World War One and then into World War Two. Um, if you can talk about how that that vein of Irving Berlin as as an American, um, he didn't have to do this. He could have he could have spent time writing all the, the music that he wrote. But it, it was important to him. How did how why was it that it, it, it was able to sustain him all those years? Patriotism was enormously important to Berlin. He wrote a song uh, for that army show he did in World War I uh, that, uh, that when his, his musical secretary at the time, and Berlin not being able to read or write music all his career used a musical secretary, a guy who sat at the piano and listened to Berlin hum a tune and then harmonized it into chords, Berlin's musical secretary uh, during World War I heard this song, this patriotic song Berlin had written, and he said, uh, the secretary said, uh, uh, Irving, too many of those songs around. Uh, we don't need to use this one. So Berlin put it in his song trunk. But when he was asked in 1938 uh, for a patriotic song for the radio singer Kate Smith, uh, he brought out that song again. He dusted it off. He changed a couple of lyrics, and it became God Bless America. This great anthem that uh, beca- became a sensation uh, as soon as America heard it. A lot of people thought it should become the national anthem, but Berlin disagreed. He, he said, we already, already have one anthem and one is enough. But uh, it so expressed his deep feelings of gratitude uh, to America. And, and these deep feelings were with him his whole life up until the last musical he wrote, Mr. President, uh, in 1962. Uh, though not a success as a musical, it was, it was a show that was filled with the strong emotions that Berlin felt about his, about his country. Well, I'd like to talk about Berlin interpreters uh, for a moment. You mentioned Kate Smith. Um, 
male and female artists, uh, all the interpreters, then and now, um, whose singing and dancing has contributed to Berlin's legacy. Does it surprise you that contemporary musicians are able to reveal such a great command of these songs, whose sentiments are decidedly products of another era? Uh, and was, was Berlin able to distill an emotional essence in his music that continues to be universal. What is that? What is it that causes contemporary um, interpreters, at young people who we're talking just within the last you know generation and a half, continue to go back to the vault uh, to to interpret his music? What's the secret? <laughs> we should all know the secret. It is, uh, it's both a secret, Dan, and a mystery, a great mystery. What makes a great, what makes an enduring standard? What makes a song like What'll I Do uh, from 1924 or Blue Skies from 1927 or Always from 1925? What makes those songs hold up? Uh, they are beautifully constructed. Uh, and yet Berlin himself said, uh, having written 1,500 songs over the course of his career, that uh, he always claimed he had written more bad songs than anybody. Fine. Uh, he, he worked hard, and, and working hard means uh, turning, out, uh, turning out product that is not always up to your highest standards. But the songs that were up to his highest standards endure, and uh, there's no mathematical formula for them. Uh, I always feel that when I hear a performance or a song that is deeply important to me, I, I get goosebumps, and uh, to me, that is the criterion. If a song uh, gives you goosebumps, then it is, uh, it's a song that sticks around, uh, and, and Berlin's best music, best compositions have stuck around for 60, 70, 80 years, and I think will continue to stick around. And finally, Christmas. How did Irving Berlin become America's most beloved Christmas composer? And, and did he, like most people who lived in the U.S. at that time, understand and perhaps magnify the role of the holiday in their lives, uh, particularly during World War II? Again, timing, so, so important uh, to his, his great success. Yes, and the timing of the, of the writing of, of White Christmas which occurred just at the beginning of World War II, was tremendously, uh, tremendously important to the song. Suddenly, GIs, uh, American soldiers and sailors, uh, were, were cast all around the world, foreign places, in great danger. And when they heard this song, White Christmas, which is not religious at all, but really uh, a nostalgia song, uh, they were so powerfully impacted by it that the song became, uh, it, it, it really became an American institution and continues as an American institution. It's not, as I say, it's not a religious song. Berlin liked to say that when he was a boy in the Lower East Side, he used to go across the street to a, a house, the apartment of a friend of his, the uh, family was named O'Hara, and of course, the the Berlin family, Berlin's family, did not have a Christmas tree, uh, but his friend uh, uh, little Tommy O'Hara had a Christmas tree. And even though it looked like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, because the O'Haras had no money either, to Berlin it seemed to tower to the sky. So I think there was something about the memory of the Lower East Side and having been poor 
but having been so richly affected by his surroundings that uh, that 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 distills the nostalgia of this great song White Christmas, which a lot of people have called schlocky, which I don't feel is schlocky at all. I think it's it's a kind of it's a kind of great and very simple poem that uh, that that stands up. Well, James Kaplan, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you also for not only bringing this uh, book about Irving Berlin into into being, uh, but also for all of the wonderful work that you've done uh, to help uh, interpret uh, so many artists and their music uh, to American readers and uh uh, we deeply appreciate your, your joining us today. Dan, I deeply appreciate uh, your having me on the show, and I love talking with you. Thank you again. The book is Irving Berlin, New York Genius, published by Yale University's Jewish Lives series. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please visit our website, benebrit.org, like our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, James Kaplan, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.